Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. And if you think about the things that a well-functioning modern economy is supposed to deliver, food would have to come pretty high on the list. If you're not living in poverty, worried about where your next meal is going to come from, you might well take it for granted. But not anymore, or at least not for many families in Europe. In the UK last month, food price inflation hit a 45-year high, with prices 19% higher than a year ago. And across the channel, food price inflation has also been close to 20% for several months. Now, if you're sitting in the US, you probably remember food prices did jump sharply last spring, in the weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine. But there, the spike proved temporary. That's not been the case in Europe, and people are not happy about it. In a minute, we'll discuss the devastating implications for the traditional English breakfast and ask a former chief economist from the US Department of Agriculture why it's taking so long for food prices to ease off. Also, whether the experience of the past year should change the way we think about the global food chain. But first, Rome-based economy reporter Alessandra Migliaccio explains how soaring prices have even put the basic human right to a pizza at risk. Inflation rates may be slowing across Europe, but you wouldn't know it looking at someone's grocery bill. Food prices are still rising at an alarming pace, and there's only so much that governments can do to help people cope. Let's start at Le Mansonnet, a small family-run restaurant nestled in the picture-perfect town of Caux, located in the Sele Valley in southwest France. A few tables, a cozy room with a view, and a set menu with local specialties allow owner Alain Falguerre to stay afloat. He's kept most items on the menu between 16 and 19 euros, but it's a struggle. Other prices are up, from bread to cereals and animal feeds, and from that you have price increases on meat like beef, lamb, poultry, and the same for the fresh foods and vegetables, everything. And for fruits, it's even worse. The biggest increase since last year. It's not easy. Bloomberg has been tracking custom food indices across France, Spain and Italy throughout Europe's worst cost of living crisis in 40 years. To calculate them, we figured out how much it would cost to make a traditional dish in each country, from classic coco vin to pizza margarita. To make coco vin, you'll need to start with chicken. And those prices jumped about 18% in the year through March. Wine is another major ingredient, which costs 8.4% more than it did a year ago. You can also add carrots, but it'll cost you more than 33% now compared to last March. Meanwhile, overall inflation in France is running at 6.7%. Still historically high, but pretty low by comparison. Much the same is happening in Italy where the price of enjoying a classic pizza margarita 
made with cheese, tomato, and basil, has been at least 20% higher than a year ago for eight consecutive months. That's more than double the nation's headline inflation rate. And even with over 90 billion euros of government aid spent to subsidize energy and gas bills and tax cuts for fuel prices at the pump, well, there's just so much politicians can do when prices go up. The government managed to reduce the impact of the first wave of inflation following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But as prices rise across a wider range of goods, including food, it's becoming too expensive to intervene. Domenico Lombardi leads the policy observatory at the Lewis University School of Government in Rome. He says governments can't keep trying to protect everyone from inflation. The inflationary outlook has evolved. Headline inflation is falling. However, core inflation shows to be more persistent than expected. And this comes uh, amidst heavy government support that has further narrowed fiscal space. Let's not forget the pandemic, the shock caused by the pandemic, uh, and then, of course, uh, the energy and the geopolitical crisis. So moving forward, the only fiscal support that looks feasible is uh, more targeted surgical interventions in favor of those most affected. That's not easy for ruling politicians like Italian Premier Giorgia Meloni, who promised her people they wouldn't be left alone to face inflation. But she has to balance that with keeping the country's fragile finances in check. The opposition has blasted her for canceling a form of citizen's income to save money, and the government is now studying other solutions, like lower taxes on salaries, to help increase purchasing power. In France, retailers have agreed to prolong efforts to charge the lowest possible amount for some essential food items. The three-month campaign was announced in early March and set to end on June 15th, until the finance ministry recently announced an extension. Supermarket chains are expected to take a hit to their margins, amounting to several hundred million euros, and the European Central Bank has increasingly highlighted the role of corporate profits in the Eurozone's inflation crisis. Here's French President Emmanuel Macron talking about the deal with retailers at the Paris Agriculture Fair earlier this year. Our farmers are paying more for energy, more to produce, and they need to maintain their revenue. They have revenues that are still very weak, so they're not the ones who need to make an effort to reduce food prices. Our food industries have made considerable efforts these last few years, many small businesses among them. It is our distributors who have to make an effort now. Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has announced several aid packages to help households cope with inflation ever since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Last year, he decided to cut the so-called value-added tax on a basket of essentials like bread and olive oil. But Spaniards are still paying more to make their prized paella dish, especially after devastating droughts last year wrecked crops like olives and rice. Olive oil, which Spain is the world's largest producer of, costs 32% more in March compared to a year ago. And rice is an extra 22%. But back in the valley of the Sele River, restaurant owner Falguer tries to make the best of it. It won't keep going up. Prices will go down at some point. A lot depends on global wheat prices and cost of animal foods. Meanwhile, you just have to go locally. That's what I do. Go directly to the farmers, which helps me spend maybe 20% less. That allows us to keep prices stable and have the same profit, and means clients can keep going to the restaurant. For Bloomberg News in Rome, I'm Alessandra Migliaccio. So not 
quite as good for your heart as olive oil, but an equally totemic part of Britain's national cuisine is the traditional English breakfast. So we thought we should monitor what was happening to that before we go on to discuss the, the broader global forces at work in these rising food prices in Europe. And Bloomberg reporter Irina Angel has more on that. Irina, thank you very much um, for telling us about the Bloomberg Breakfast Index. I guess you should first tell us what exactly, if you were eating an English, a traditional English breakfast, what would you be in for? Let's see. So I think it's sausages, bacon, eggs, bread, butter, um, <laughs> tomatoes, mushrooms. Fried uh, bread as well. So fried it has to bread, be particularly yeah. bad for you, yes, but tasty. Um, and probably tea. <laughs> okay, so and um, what have we found out? What is the English Breakfast Index telling us at the moment? So, you know, the English Breakfast Index sort of puts inflation in the frying pan. Um, so we, it, as you mentioned, each month we use it to track the cost of the uh, 10 products. So the products I mentioned, plus coffee, in case, um, I mean, I personally prefer coffee <laughs> uh, over tea. Um, and we use data from the UK Office for National Statistics. So the latest breakfast index uh, showed that the average cost of ingredients increased almost 23% from last year. And it's the sharpest jump since we started tracking the numbers in June. Um, eggs, bread and milk saw the biggest price rises. So Stephanie, if you and I go to the supermarket, we are going to pay around £35.50 for all the 10 products to make a full fry up, which is almost six pounds more than last March. And 35 pounds, I mean, I guess it depends on what the exchange rate is doing, but that's, you know, at least $45. And uh, of course, that's not just for one person. I guess you'd be buying slightly more, it would probably be for a few people, but that's yeah, a, hell exactly, of a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is a lot of money. That's, as you mentioned, yeah, that's using the product sizes that the ONS provides, provides so a dozen eggs or a pint of milk, but it's, it's a lot of money for a, for a typical family. And how does that compare to some of these other sort of classic meals around the world that we've been talking about? Well, national dishes are becoming a luxury everywhere around the world, sort of. Um, at Bloomberg, we saw that uh, in South Africa, the cost of making a traditional barbecue, uh, which sounds delicious, by the way, with ingredients like beef, carrots, onions and corn. Um, so the price for that increased 20%, mainly driven by fresh products like um, pepper and tomatoes. Back in Europe, uh, well, you know, uh, surging olive oil prices are behind the jump in uh, Spain's paella index uh, and are making pizza margherita more expensive in Italy. In France, also the price of preparing uh, cocovin rose by 15% because of uh, more expensive carrots and chicken. So it's so a problem everywhere. The fries getting out of the out of reach in South Africa would definitely uh, strike fear into the hearts. And when those numbers came out, uh, I was in the UK. And there was a sort of collective sigh because, of course, we've been expecting inflation to slow down. Um, and we've seen in large parts of Europe uh, inflation coming down quite sharply, the headline inflation rate. Why are food prices still rising in the UK? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And it's all the factors you mentioned is and plus the fact that global commodity prices have also been declining for a while now. So part of the explanation could be that big food producers in the UK are still tied to long-term commodity contracts that they signed back when prices were sky high. So we have to wait for them to renew these contracts um, until we see the price falls to feed through. 
And manufacturers, it looks like they keep passing on costs through the supply chain to consumers to protect their margins. Um, however, there are some signs inflation is easing in some categories. Um, some supermarkets, including Tesco, Asda, Sainsbury, Aldi, Lidl, or Ocado, all lower their price of milk. Uh, Tesco is also seeing some deflation uh, for oils and grains, and that could um, could mean lower prices for baked goods like croissants and all that. So do looking down the road, if we decide to pass on the English breakfast right now because it's too expensive, is there any chance it's going to come back into reach in the next few months? The good news is even now, on a monthly basis, inflation in the breakfast index looks like it's look like I mean it's might be already slowing. Um, the price of eggs, mushrooms and tea all fell in March actually from last month. And uh, buttermilk and bread were unchanged. And we're also entering the UK growing season and that might also slow down food inflation. However, if you ask analysts, they always say that absolute pricing rarely falls. So when we finally see inflation slowing down, we might get more promotional discounts rather than cheaper full price tags. So this all means that the English breakfast is probably going to stay indulgent in every sense of the word. Well, exactly. It's, it's pretty indulgent. Maybe it's better. Maybe for the better for the British heart if we uh, if we have um, fewer of them. I do. Uh, I had heard quite a lot of discussion uh, around the fact that the structure of Britain's supermarkets was actually means that when prices are low, more of that is passed on to the consumer. People often say, you know, they go into it, the supermarkets in general are more expensive in continental Europe. But the cost of that, the cost of sort of squeezing the last penny out of the suppliers is that times like this, you just get shortages. I guess the final question, Arena: can we blame Brexit for this soaring cost of the English breakfast? I mean, one role that Brexit uh, could play is that is um, labour shortages in the in the food industry more broadly. And we've been speaking to lots of businesses who mentioned Brexit as their their top problem, that they can't find enough workers. Well, I suspect this is going to continue to be a debate, but Irina Angel, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So we're going to broaden this out. We've heard about a lot of 
um, hard-pressed European consumers in this episode. And we're going to carry on worrying about them, but we're also going to think about the rest of the world and the potential implications of all these ups and downs of food prices in the last year um, with Joe Glauber, who is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. He also used to be chief economist of the US Department of Agriculture. Um, Joe, thank you very much uh, for coming on Stephanomics. I'm always conscious when I am hearing about the soaring prices for things like uh, wheat or uh, olive oil that, you know, as an economist, demand and supply. I mean, high prices are also a way of deciding who gets none. Uh, It's a rationing mechanism when there's a shortage of something, you know, who has got much less food over the last year and how bad has it been relative to the expectations we might have had um, when uh, a year ago when Russia invaded Ukraine? You know, I think actually the world's adjusted pretty well to the invasion. Um, you know, no question the Black Sea was a big producer of, of wheat and maize and, and vegetable oils like sunflower oil. Um, and the once, particularly the few months after the war started, we saw this big rise in prices. Uh, um, and you know, but by about June or so of the of last year, prices had started to come down again. And and in fact, by about the fall, they were back to pre-war levels. That hasn't been the case for food price inflation. And I think that's a very important distinction to make between commodity prices and actually retail food prices, which is, you know, what, what consumers are facing. And and in the developing developed economies like UK or, or the US or uh, uh, member states of the European Union, the commodity value is such a small share of the overall food cost, right? So if you go to a, look at a loaf of bread, you know, that's five to 10% of that, that value of bread that you're purchasing in, in a, a grocery store is actually the price of wheat. So wheat price can go up a lot, but the uh, price of, of bread, not so much. But by the same token, all of those other post-farm gate costs get built into the price of food. So what we're seeing in, in a lot of economies right now is overall very, very high rates of inflation. So that's affecting energy prices, it's, it's affecting processing costs, it's affecting wage rates. All of these things have built into very high food prices. That's one. Some of that is is less the case in developing countries where maybe that, that post-farm gate uh, share of the overall food cost is smaller. That is, that the price of the underlying commodity is, is, is means more. But there, unfortunately, those countries haven't seen quite the price decline as we've seen on global markets. Why? Because the dollar has re- remained so high and is actually appreciated against some of those account- commodities. So if you go to, say, Egypt and look at, at the price of wheat um, that, that you know, is used, bread is a huge staple in a country like Egypt. Those prices have increased substantially um, and, and, you know, right after the, the war began, but they haven't declined nearly as much as they have on global markets. Why? Because the Egyptian pound has, has lost value relative to the dollar. And because commodities are, most commodities are, are denominated in dollars, that means in local currencies, those prices haven't fallen nearly as much. 
You've actually highlighted a good point. I mean, we have looked at some of the causes of eurozone inflation over the last year, the increase in the inflation rate. And interestingly, our economists found that a big chunk of the increase, not just in the food sector, but across the board, was from European companies expanding their profit margin margins, which I guess some people would call price gouging. Um, so there's definitely a lot of things going into that higher price uh, in, the shop, in the shops. But you know, we tend to blame one way or another the Ukraine invasion by Russia with these issues. But I feel like I was hearing about serious problems with fertilizer prices and some commodity markets long before Russia's invasion. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you, if you were to look at commodity prices generally, and I, 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 that's certainly the case for wheat and, and maize and, and vegetable oils. They were all rising prior to the invasion. I mean, this was the big concern uh, even prior to Russia invading Ukraine, as we were looking back in January uh, 2022 at very uh, tight global stocks, and we're looking at fairly high prices. Now, the expectation was that farmers would respond, and by the end of the year, we would have you know rebuilding of stocks. That didn't happen because of the war, and I think that is the, the war has had definitely an impact there. But when we when we talk about those commodity prices down to pre-invasion levels, they are still running very much above uh, levels of say uh, two years ago or back to 2020 even. And and in, in the case of 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 energy prices or fertilizer prices, they're down 80 percent from the pre from the peaks that we saw in the spring of 2022, but still 100 percent above where they were in January compared to January 2020. So yes, prices are high; they have come down a lot, but they're still high relative to historical levels. And I guess when we think about higher energy prices, we often forget that that feeds into that has also affected um, fertilizer prices, which then affects future crops of countries years into the future. Right, and there and 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 don't forget that energy costs are very much embodied in food food costs. Ultimately, I mean uh, transportation, uh, all the transformation, depending on. Um, uh, and, and even in, at the farm level, some crops are very, very energy intensive. And as you say, particularly when you factor in fertilizer and, and other products. COVID was another sort of uh, force on uh, making us think about this, that people realised when we had these supply chain issues globally, that dependence on just one or two suppliers for anything, whether it's you know widgets or grain, is not necessarily a healthy thing. Do you think, do you see efforts by countries, by agricultural uh, businesses to broaden their sources of supply? Is that one lesson that comes out of all of these experiences, COVID, Ukraine invasion and other things? Yeah, I, I no, there's no question. I think the 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 market actually has responded pretty well, particularly bulk trade, uh, the wheat, corn. Uh, there, countries were able to source alternative sources for their products. Uh, there, we, there wasn't a case where we just ran, you know, ran out of wheat. People were able to find wheat uh, around the world. I, I think the longer run, as we look forward. I think the real key is flexibility to be able to pivot and and seek alternative sources. I'm not sure that you necessarily would diversify just for the sake of diversification. It's a strategy and it's much like an insurance product. You have to look at what the cost of diversification is. So if if I'm Egypt and I'm looking across 
the Mediterranean at a very uh, um, or Black Sea area looking at very cheap source of wheat, if I were to say, well, I'm not going to import from them because I want to diversify to a much more higher cost supplier, that's the cost you have to pay. And so I think the the if you look at what Egypt was able to do, by contrast, is they were able to pivot import from India, import from from the EU. And so I think having that flexibility is what's really important. And that does mean having the ability to tap alternative sources. So I'm not saying that diversification is the wrong strategy. I'm just saying that you don't diversify just for the sake of diversification, that you need to, to, to be able to be flexible, to pivot to other areas, to find uh, uh, sources when, you, when there are uh, disruptions and the obvious disruptions that we're seeing right now. And I think, unfortunately, the long run disruptions because of the continued low prices in Ukraine. And we're seeing, you know, how that's affected plantings in the fall last year. They're now affecting supplies this year. Um, the, the ongoing war, the fact that it's very, very costly to ship product out of Ukraine right now, uh, all that has longer term significance for, for the region. I guess the final question is whether any of this has has accelerated or changed the attitude to some of this exciting technological breakthroughs that we hear about in other parts of the economy, whether it's robotics or AI or genetic engineering. Um, is there has has the debate around deploying that in agriculture and having a second or are we at this point a third or a fourth green revolution? Has that debate changed in the space of the last few years? Well, I, I, I think 2007, 8, 2010, 11, was, were, they were real wake-up calls because we had underinvested in agricultural productivity for so many years. Uh, that's how, and now seeing this over the last year, uh, particularly with starting actually with COVID and now seeing the, the problems in the, uh, in the Black Sea. Yes, you're right. I think that, that there's increasing calls now to increase productivity in areas like sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, areas where we see big gaps between yield potential and actual potential and then or actual production. And then the other issue is is fertilizer. You know, unlike wheat, where, you know, wheat is grown in a lot of areas around the world, you know, something like potash, you're talking about just a handful of countries that are major producers. And so I think, you know, interest in things like green fertilizers and other other sorts of technologies, which are still a ways off. I think there's renewed interest in in um, putting more research dollars into that area to, to again, I, in this case, you know, look at more sustainable uh, uh, ways of increasing, improving productivity. So that's Stephanomics for you, folks. We have one week we had grand financiers in L.A. and the next week we're talking about potash. Joe Glauber, thank you so much for helping us out with this. Glad I could be of help. Well, that's it for this food-focused episode of Stephanomics. We will be back next week. In the meantime, you can get a lot more economic insight and news from the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, Yang Yang and Summer Sadi. With special thanks to Alessandra Milaccio, Irina Angel and Joe Glauber. The executive producer of Stephanomics is Molly Smith and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Sage Bowman.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.